Open uh, with me to Matthew chapter 16. Don't camp out there. We are going to be going to a different text pretty soon. But this is kind of our main theme, main text. As you can see, Matthew 16, 24 is the verse that's up on the follow graph and also on our t-shirts. So we will read over that. And then we are going to jump over to Acts chapter 2 if you want to go ahead and, and turn there. As well, we've got a lot of text to cover today in about 30 minutes. By the way, Matt's uh, telling you to sleep is not an excuse for you to sleep, so please don't do that. At least that's what I tell myself, and that's what I'll tell myself as I'm crying in a closet by myself later on this afternoon. So, uh, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 16. As you can see, this, this weekend we had a Disciple Now weekend, kind of like a mini VBS. We had a lot of help. A lot of people, I thank you guys for that, um, for being the hands and feet of Christ this weekend, right? And the students, as they got to stay up late and drink a lot of Coke and get hyper and do whatever else they did, they also studied well, had a lot of questions, had great discussion, focused on what it means to follow Christ. And they really had four different sessions in that. So who is Jesus? The call to follow. So what is the call to follow Jesus entail? What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? And then earlier this morning during Sunday school time, we went over the radical life of a follower. So those are kind of the four themes we're going to look at today. We're going to be going over the text that uh, we as the students, uh, or the students went over this weekend, sorry, in Disciple Now. Starting in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read 24 through 28, and then let's pray. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever to wi- wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray as we gather to worship you corporately today, as we did already through song, God, through the testimony of the Parents' Commission, God, I pray that we would commit to pray for Carly and Skyler. God, and as we... Open up your word today to Matthew 16 and Acts chapter 2. She would open the eyes of our hearts, Jesus, that those of us who are following you, you would stir our passions for you, Jesus, and we would desire even more to follow you. God, that this wouldn't just be, for the students specifically, a mountaintop, one-time experience, God, but that this would be something that is just another notch in their journey of following you to push them to you, Jesus. God, for people in here who may not be following you, who may have questions about following you, who may not know if they are following you, Jesus, that you would open up hearts radically like only you can do. Open up hearts supernaturally like only you can do, Jesus. Change us. Make us more like you, God, that we would be your hands and feet. We would want to bring you honor and glory in everything we think, say, and do here in Lee County. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we read Matthew 16, 24 through 28, right, we went over specifically 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, right, if so if we want to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, 
and follow him. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is a follower? If you are a follower of somebody in some respective area, what you are saying is, I really don't know anything in that respective area, and I'm willing to learn from you. So for example, math class. You go into math class not knowing anything, right? You might think you know how to do math, and then you realize once the teacher starts writing stuff on the board, I really don't know anything about math. So, right, you are following the teacher's directions. You are following what the teacher does. And to this day, you probably do math like your favorite math teacher. For example, in high school, I hated math, and I had terrible math teachers, right? So math was not a strong suit. And then I went to college and got a bachelor's degree in finance, and I loved math. It was a complete switch. The difference was the professors in all reality. And now I do math like my two favorite professors that I'm thinking of right now. So in a sense, in that aspect of math, I was following them. It's the same, the, the same kind of concept comes up with like an apprenticeship. When you're an apprentice, let's say an electrician's apprentice, you're saying, I don't know anything and I want whoever I'm going under to teach me, and I will be a follower of them in that regard. It's the same with parenting. Even though it's not always the case, for the most part, you probably have some areas in your parenting that you parent like your parents parented. Right? You were following their lead and, and being little parents under them, right? As they parented. Right? And so we start to mold each other in these different areas in this different regard. So when we talk about following Jesus, we're not talking about what our culture says of following, right? Just a, a click on Twitter. I'm following this person on Twitter. I'm following this person on Facebook. Or I'm following this athlete. We're not talking about that. Following is saying to Jesus, right? I really don't know anything about life in general, right? My heart is wicked. I've come into this world in sin, not knowing true life. And what we are saying is, Jesus, show me how to walk, how to walk as a follower of you, Jesus, to know true life, to know more about you. And we are becoming like Christ, like I became in math, right? Be like my math professors. We are saying in all of life, Jesus, make me like you. As a follower of Jesus, again, we recognize the fact we don't really know anything. Right, so now flip over real quick to Acts chapter 2. I told you we wouldn't camp there long. Acts chapter 2 was our main text for the small group discussions this weekend at Disciple Now. Um, we're going to look at specifically Peter's sermon within Acts chapter 2. So Peter, this is the, the guy that cut off someone's ear, the guy who said he would never deny Christ and then denied him three times, the one guy in the Bible that Jesus called Satan when he said, get behind me, Satan, right? So the one guy in the Bible that was just this guy who always put in his, foot, his foot in his mouth. I do that quite often so I can relate with Peter. But now, as we see Jesus ascended into heaven, as we see the Holy Spirit has come upon Peter, and now is leading Peter, we see this, this supernatural, uh, and I know that's a weird word for us, but this supernatural impromptu sermon that Peter is going to preach to the Jews here in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 and 16 to give us a little bit of background, and then we're going to skip ahead to 22. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, 
for it is only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drinking. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And we won't read that, right? But he goes through uh, this Old Testament prophecy showing how the Spirit is going to come upon those who are in Christ, Christ's people. So the first session, as we go to 22, before we read that, like I said, the first session in D-Now was, who is Jesus? This is really the most important aspect of following Jesus. It's not often that a preacher makes the first point the most important, but this is the most important thing, the most important aspect of following Jesus is understanding who Jesus is. Because it's not so much about us as it is about who he is, about his glory, about his compassion, about his love, about his death and resurrection for us. So in order to follow Christ, we have to know who he is. Likewise, if you follow an athlete, you will find out where that athlete went to high school. You will went, you'll find out how much they averaged in college, uh, where they were from, how tall they are, right? You'll find out these aspects about them because you're going to see, do I really want to follow this athlete? Right? Do I really want to uh, model my sports after this athlete? Uh, for example, I follow God's greatest gift to sports, the Red Sox, the Boston Red Sox. Right? Matt's shaking his head. Amen, Clay. Okay, right? So in order to follow them, I have to know something about them. Right? If you're going to follow a theologian or a pastor, you want to know something about them. When you uh, called Matt... As the pastor here, you asked him a lot of questions and wanted to know something about him. Likewise, if we're going to follow Christ, we must know who he is. Knowing who Jesus is isn't something that we put in our own head. It's not some truth that we define on our own. Jesus is who he is because he always has been and always will be. So we look in his word to see who Christ is. So we're going to start reading in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So as we begin this, we start to see God attested that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one that has always been the one who was chosen from the beginning of time that was going to save us from our sins, that was going to rule and reign on high. So we have to understand who this Jesus is. I love how A.W. Tozer says it in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. In other words, what we think of God will define what we do in life, will define the God that we follow. If we think of God, for example, as some judgmental God who's sitting on the the throne just waiting to strike us down with lightning every time we sin, we will tend to live our lives in fear. We will tend to live our lives as legalists, as Pharisees, as people who have to try to earn our own righteousness, if that's our view of God. On the other side, if our view of God is this lovey-dovey, soft, fluffy bunny that's sitting up on this throne that will never punish sin, that didn't punish sin uh, on Jesus on the cross, right? Then we will tend to live our lives as people who can do whatever they want without regard to sanctification or wanting to walk in righteousness, wanting to follow Jesus. Or if we don't believe there's a God at all, we will tend to go by our feelings, 
Oh, whatever I'm feeling today, that's what I'm going to do. Or whatever I feel like doing, that's what I'm going to do. Or if we think of God as a weak God who is not in control, who is not supremely ruling, we will not follow him with our lives. We will say, you know what, God kind of rules. He's kind of in control what happens on this earth, but he's not really a God that I'm worth giving all my life to. But when we see God as the God of the Bible, as what Scripture shows us, in Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, when we see that God, the God of the Bible, the one true God, he is worthy of following. When that comes in the mental image that we have of God, that is the one who is worthy of following, and that will define how we walk and how we live. So let's continue on. Verse 23. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So it was always God's plan for Jesus to die. right? So God wasn't just in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and they sinned and he didn't just say, oh man, what am I going to do now? Plan B. right? God always knew man would fail. Man was not good enough. We are not good enough. We are not worthy except by Christ through the death and resurrection of Christ who makes us worthy. That was always his predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So when we think of that and when we know that even before I was born, long before this earth was created, God knew he was going to have to sweep in and save us. That's a God worth following. That's a God who I want to follow, whose plan will not fail. God's plan will not fail. That's a real easy thing for us to say. It's a whole other thing for us to believe. Do we believe that God's plan will not fail? Are we living in fear of what's going on in this world, saying, God, are you really in control? Or do we believe God is completely in control? And he will not fail. And he will build his church. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. Let's continue on. Verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Death has no sway over Christ. How many of us can say, you know what, I'm going to conquer death. I think I'm going to die today, and I'm going to rise again. None of us can. But Jesus did. Jesus said, I'm going to lay my, down, my life down. No one's going to take it from me. And then I'm going to raise it back up again. I will conquer death. And it's only through that conquering of death that we can be given life. I love that, that mental image. And I love the word Peter uses here. Impossible. It was impossible for him to be held by its power. In other words, there's no way that death would have held Jesus. It wasn't this thing that was up in the air when Jesus died saying, all right, I'm going on this cross and I hope I'm going to conquer death. I hope I'm going to rip the gates of hell off its hinges. I hope that I will rise again into all my glory. I hope that I will ascend into heaven. That wasn't a hope. This was a sure thing. It was impossible for death to hold Christ. And now, because Jesus plunged into the depths of death to conquer it, we can go into the depths of death without fear of it. Because Jesus conquered death for us, death is not something to be 
fearful of. Death is not something to go into saying, oh man, what am I going to do? I wanted to do so much more on this earth. Death is something that we trust completely in God's hands, saying, I know he has appointed a time for me. I love the way Lottie Moon says it. You're invincible until you're allotted time to die. Death is something to go into saying, to live is Christ, now to die is gain. And I know I will live forever at his feet. That's a Jesus who is worth following. That's a God who is worth following with all of our lives. Put an end to death, to the agony of death, because it was impossible for him to be held by its power. And then we see Peter use an Old Testament verse here from Psalm 16, verse 25. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So this, this psalm that David wrote a thousand years before Christ came, right, in Psalm 16. And Peter's going to use this argument and say, David's still dead, right? As we read verse 29, he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. In other words, he didn't rise from the dead. His body didn't uh, cease to decay. He's not ruling and reigning. This is who David was talking about. And Peter goes on, verse 30. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. His crowd here most likely would have saw Jesus' earthly ministry. Many of them would have heard of Jesus rising again from the dead. And Peter's saying, you're witnesses of that. You know Jesus conquered death. Christian, we do not serve a God who is dead, who is weak, who was abandoned to Hades. We serve a God who conquered it. We serve a God who has conquered death for us so that we don't have to, so that we don't have to go into death fearful of it. It's a Jesus worth following. Let's continue on. <clears throat> Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus is exalted above all else. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So this spirit that has come upon you that you're seeing as they were speaking in other languages supernaturally, he's saying this is the Holy Spirit that Christ has poured out on us. Christ has the power to conquer death. Christ is exalted at the right hand of God. And Christ has the power to pour out his spirit on people. So not only is he saving us, he's changing us. He is both Christ and Lord. Verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter's tying these two psalms together. He ties uh, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 together. And he says these two psalms, right? these Old Testament prophecies written a thousand years before Christ, are showing his lordship and his messiahship. The fact that Jesus is the one who, is going to be the, who, who was the messiah, 
who was the Christ, who was the anointed one, who was the one that all of the Old Testament pointed to, saying this is the one who will save his people from their sins. Jesus does that. But Jesus is also Lord. If he's Lord, he's worthy of following. He will save you and he will change you. And he will give you the way to follow him through his spirit. He doesn't abandon you all of a sudden at salvation. Following Jesus is this lifelong journey as we are led by his spirit. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Let's go on to verse 37. So what is this call to follow? After Jesus, after Peter's sermon, sorry, he, they said, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of this, the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Notice Peter didn't just rip them apart here. He did say, he, Jesus died at the hands of you lawless men. But Jesus, that wasn't Peter's point in trying to pierce their hearts. He wasn't trying to be this mean guy that say, Look how horrible you guys are. He focused on how great Jesus was. Christian, as we are proclaiming the gospel, as we are loving others, the point is, is not how terrible we are. Yes, it's important to recognize our sin. But so much greater than that is how perfect and great and awesome Jesus is. He is worthy of falling. And that is why they were pierced to the heart. Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The call to repent is a call to, uh, to lay down our pride, to recognize our wickedness, and see the greatness and the beauty of Jesus. In order to repent, you have to realize you're a sinner, right? We have to realize, I am not worthy of grace, I'm not worthy of heaven. I'm not worthy of even getting to be called a follower of Jesus. But because of Christ's sacrifice, because of Christ's perfection, because of Christ's completed work as he is sitting at the right hand of God because his work is done, I can be made worthy by him and him alone. The call to repent is a call to recognize our wickedness, and that's a daily call. Lord, forgive me, and thank you how beautiful and great you are. Thank you for your grace. It's a beautiful thing. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit as we walk as followers of Jesus when it says you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus saves us, forgives us, and he gives us the ability to follow after him. Let's continue on. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. That is great news for us. It's not just for them. Since it's for you, it's for your children and all who are far off. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for your neighbor that has a different skin color. The gospel is for the illegal immigrant that lives down the road. The gospel is for the person who talks differently than you do. The gospel is for the generation that you complain about. The gospel is for the bully at school who says and mean things about you and lies about you constantly. The gospel is for the unloving spouse that you can't seem to get along with. The gospel is for the child that does not behave and that you don't know how to parent to. And the gospel is for this wretched sinner that's standing before you. The gospel is for all. As all are invited, come to the table. Whosoever will. The gospel call, as he says, Peter says, as many as the Lord will call to himself. It's for you and your children and all who are far off. Don't ever think of someone as unworthy of the gospel, because you are as well. 
but Jesus calls all. Let's focus on that. If we are followers of Christ, we will be focused on that. And not on the fact of that person's mean to me. I don't like that person. I don't like what that person says. That person looks differently than me. That person treats me horrible. The gospel changes hearts. When we look at the log in our own eye, from our perspective saying, my sin is terrible. Maybe that person's sin is not that bad. We can say, the gospel changed me. It can change anyone. The gospel has saved me. Jesus has saved me and is making me new through the process of sanctification. It can change and save anyone. Let's continue on. Let's hustle through these last few verses. Verse 40, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. Imagine if 3,000 people in Lovington came to Christ today. This radical change as God was moving, as God was speaking through Peter and changing hearts and drawing people to himself. Christian, that still happens today. Let's continue on. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted their lives to one another and to Christ. They fellowshiped with one another. They hung out. They sharpened each other and made each other more like Jesus. They broke bread with one another. They ate together and they practiced the Lord's Supper together, remembering that they need Jesus even more than food and life itself. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We have that in the form of the New Testament. Krishna, we devoted to that. I'm not just talking about a daily devotional that we read for five minutes in the morning. Do, does this word make our lives go? Does this word determine what we're going to do in life? Does this word determine what happens in every situation? Are we devoted to that? And they devoted themselves to prayer with one another and for one another. How often are our prayers so self-focused and not focused on each other or the salvation of someone who has not surrendered their lives to Christ? Let's continue on. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. Are we in awe of God's beauty? Or do we read this Bible and say, ah, I'm bored. Ah, Matt's gone 35 minutes. I'm kind of bored with this now. Ah, I don't really want to go on Wednesday night. I'm kind of bored of that. I really don't want to go and have this Bible study. I'm bored of that. I don't want to hear how great Jesus is. I want someone to give me a different solution for my problems. I'm bored of that. I don't want someone to point me to Jesus. I know, I know that's the answer. But I want you to fix this problem with some other kind of worldly advice. Are we bored of those things? Are we in awe of the beauty of God that God can still love a sinner like me and save a sinner like me and change a sinner like me? Are we in awe with the beauty all around us that God is in control in spite of the chaos as it may seem? God is still in control and all authority has been given to Jesus on heaven and on earth. Are we in awe of that, Christian? Let's continue on. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as one as any may have need. That takes giving up comfort. As Christians, these, these early believers weren't just saying, I'm selling my extra TV and I'm going to maybe 
put that in the offering so I can write it off as a tax exemption. These Christians were radically changed so that they cared for the glory of Jesus and they cared for one another and they were selling what they had and had all things in common so that their focus, their minds would not be set on I have to make this amount of money or I have to buy this or I want this dream. They were willing to give up comforts and say I'm willing to give up my dream, my money, all my possessions for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus. What would that look like if we were that radical Christian? What would that look like today if we loved Jesus that much? We'll finish up. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Look at this. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Matt will not build the church. I will not build the church. Peter will not build the church did not build the church. Jesus builds this church. Jesus calls people to himself. Jesus changes hearts. On that rock will he build his church. We don't have to fret, Christian. We, sit, we serve a wonderful, powerful, almighty, sovereign God, and he is worthy of following. So I leave you with these three questions. Ask yourself this. Are we about the kingdom? The kingdom of God? Or are we about our own kingdom? It's real easy to say the first, oh yeah, I'm about the kingdom of God. But if I were to take your, your bank statement, your 401k statement, your Roth IRA statement, what would that say? Whose kingdom would that say you're about? The kingdom of God or your own? If I were to take a log of your time for the next month, 24 hours a day, what would your time say about whose kingdom you're trying to build? God's are your own. The conversations that you've had over the last week, ask yourself that question. Whose kingdom are you focused on? God's or your own? Next question. Are we about our own comfort or the comfort of others and the glory of God? These Christians gave up everything. These early believers were willing to follow Jesus, even if it meant giving up everything to the rest of the church and even losing their lives. That takes a willingness to say, it's not about my comfort. I'm not just looking for that awesome dream job I've been, I've been waiting for, for that salary I've been waiting for. Even if I have to give up those things, even if I have, if I have to give up that dream house that I daydream about, even if I have to give up that, that dream job or whatever else you can fill in the blank, are we about Jesus' glory and other people, not our own comfort? And the last question, are we focused on following our own hearts or are we focused on following Jesus? What do you daydream about? What, what are most of your conversations consumed with that usually reveals what your mind is consumed with, what most of your time is spent doing? Are you consumed with, I have to hit that dollar amount to retire or I have to be able to buy that dream home or I want to have this dream family, or I want to have this dream job, or whatever else. Or are we willing to say, Jesus, even if I don't get any of those things, I'm following you, because you are more worthy. Your kingdom is greater. Your glory is greater. Let's live for a higher calling to follow Christ, 
say, Jesus, I'm going to give all of me to you, even if nothing that I want in this earth comes true, because you are worth it. You are worthy of it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your beauty. I thank you for your messiahship. Thank you for your lordship. Jesus, thank you that you are worthy of following us, of, of us following. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. God, I pray that we would not sit back in our own comfort, what our culture tells us to do. We would not seek our own kingdom, but we would seek your kingdom, Lord, and your glory. And we would desire to follow you radically and be changed into your image and to become more like you through this journey we call life. For all of our days, I pray that you would change hearts like only you can. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. As